0: My name is Tyler Pruitt. I am the host of the Rise Kill E podcast. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of the Rise Kill E podcast where it is my goal to share the stories of those people that are in the hunting community and all the great things that they're doing in their lives and around the lifestyle of hunting. So thank you guys again for joining me for another episode today. I am very excited for today's episode. I have the retired Navy SEAL Jack Carr. He is now an author of the books, The Terminal List, and his newest one, which we get into today, True Believer. So I'm very excited to be able to share that with you guys today. I really think you guys are going to enjoy it. And uh, thank you for returning for another episode. If this is your first time listening to the Rice podcast, go ahead and subscribe to this show. I've had some really great guests so far on this show, guys like Jeremiah Doughty, uh, Colin Cottrell, I've had guys talking about all kinds of different topics around hunting from from filming hunts to bow fishing and we've had all kinds of people that are experts and have vast amount of knowledge in those areas so go ahead and subscribe to the Rise Kill Eat podcast so you don't miss out on any of the future episodes and if you haven't listened to some of our past episodes go ahead and go back and check those out again today I have Jack Carr he is a retired Navy SEAL and he is now an author Uh, he is actually a fiction author which is what something we get into quite a bit and his we get into his motivation for for why he chose to write fiction and the type of books that he has chosen to write. And we get into his life in the military as an officer in the SEALs and as a sniper in the SEALs and how that really led to his passion and his drive to want to hunt. So make sure you guys stick around for this one. It's a really, really neat episode. It's a very educational episode on... A lot of things that are going on over in Africa as far as African hunting goes. Jack has a lot of experience with that kind of thing as he just returned from a trip from South Africa where he was responsible for teaching an anti-poaching unit how to use certain firearms and really shared some of his experiences and, and tactics with that group in order to help them fight the poaching issues that are going on over there. So again, I'm really excited to be able to share that with you guys today. Now, before we get into today's episode, I just want to go ahead and share a couple things with you. If you guys haven't checked out our Instagram page, it's at afield so that's RKE as in Rise, Kill, Eat. A field. then go ahead and check us out. I'm mostly active on Instagram. Now I also have a Facebook page that I, I'm also active on, but I think between the two, Instagram is probably the one I'm, I'm most active on. So go ahead and check out RKE Afield on Facebook and Instagram, and then check out our website. It's rkeafield.com. You can find all of our shirts on there, all of our hats, and uh, go ahead and just check out rkeffield.com whenever you get the chance. Last thing, if you haven't checked out the digital campfire that Colin Cottrell mentioned in I believe is episode 10, then go ahead and check out go ahead and check that out. And you can do that at jointhecampfire.com. So that's jointhecampfire.com. And the digital campfire is an online community for hunters of all skill levels. Go ahead and check that out. Um, if you are a new hunter then you're definitely going to benefit from this. We have weekly calls where we talk about a lot of the latest gear, a lot of the, the essential gear for hunting in the field. We get into you know tactics. We get into this past week, we talked about uh, some conservation matters. We get all, into all kinds of great conversations around the world of hunting and everything that is involved with the lifestyle of hunting. So if you guys are interested in that, go to jointhecampfire.com. Request some more information. uh, Colin Costro himself will send that to you. If you decide to join the digital campfire, then use promo code RKE. So that's Rise, Kill, Eat. Promo code RKE as they are a proud partner of the Rise, Kill, Eat podcast. So go ahead and check them out. Go ahead and use promo code RKE if you decide to pull the trigger on the digital campfire. So that's all I have as far as announcements go for today. Thank you guys for joining me again and without further ado here is our episode with Jack Carr sit back and enjoy the show
1: how you doing doing great doing great yeah it's crazy all these different uh different ways to do podcasts and interviews and all that and the settings need to change for for each one and then switch them back and it's uh it's crazy but that's uh that's how it goes feel very fortunate to be in the position where I have to figure this stuff out
0: that's right I'm sure this time of year is probably pretty busy for you especially with everything you got going on right now
1: it's insane, but it's uh, it's good problems to have, as they say.
0: I'm sure with all the the stuff going on, were were you able to make it out to the Total Archery Challenge this this summer in Utah?
1: I was so bummed. So I got back from New York late last night, so yeah, I wasn't there for for meetings with the publisher and Barnes and Noble, and then a bunch of interviews and stuff like that in New York. So I could not make it this year, unfortunately. And now they're in Big Sky, so they're just up the road, but. Still can't make it there. I have a, a few more things to do for this book launch, and then we go right into to the book tour here uh, next week, I guess.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where are you heading for the book tour?
1: Yeah, so we go all over the place. So I start in uh, uh, Arizona, Scottsdale, and I forget exactly where I go from there, but I'll, I'll end up in Dallas, Houston, uh, Colorado Springs, Denver, Portland, San Diego, uh, Vero Beach. Um, gosh, where else? A couple other ones in there, but it's a pretty busy uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, man, it sounds like it sounds like you're going to be all over the place, and you're
0: going to do that in a matter of just two weeks.
1: Yeah, it's a two week deal, and then I come back, and I think a couple days later, I'm off to uh, Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia to do some research for book three. So it's uh, (laughs) I'm excited see that (laughs) one. Yeah, crazy. So that's a fishing and a uh, brown bear hunt. Oh man! Um, Yeah, book three is pretty much done, but I'll be editing it between now and uh, I think probably mid October. Uh, late October timeframe. So all the local flavor that I get by going over there and uh, meeting people and uh, getting to talk to them and weave some of their stories into the the narrative just adds, uh, adds a little bit of, Know, authenticity and color that I uh, wouldn't get otherwise. So I did that with Mozambique and South Africa, um, a couple other places for the first two books. So excited to do it in Kamchatka now. I've always wanted to go there. Yeah, I'm looking
0: forward to seeing what you come up with there. I've, the, I was uh, fortunate enough; the publisher sent me a copy of your new one, which we'll get into here in a little bit. But uh, true believer, and I've been reading it, man. It's a it's a good one, just as good as The Terminal List. I, I, I'm a big fan
1: of both of those, and been him. able to read both of those and they both turned out awesome. I oh, appreciate that. Appreciate that. I wanted to do it since I was a little kid. So I always knew that after the military, I dive into the world of publishing and got uh, very lucky that uh, the first novel ended up on the the desk of the one person that if you could choose one person in New York to, to read it and like it, it would be Emily Bessler at Emily Bessler Books, which is part of Atria and Simon and & Schuster. And she uh, publishes Brad Thor and published Vince Flynn when he was alive. And uh, continues to publish him on, uh, with the new author, Kyle Mills, but she's absolutely incredible and uh, have an amazing team out there. It's Emily Bessler Books and Simon & Schuster. So I feel so fortunate to be doing this. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Uh, well, I appreciate you taking some time today to come on the show. And I really wanted to spend some time to get to know you as you know the the former retired Navy SEAL, you now as the author. So I wanted to spend some time to talk to you today for that purpose. So before we get too far into into writing, what really inspired you to
1: become a SEAL? Yes, yeah, so that's something I wanted to do since I, well, since I can remember. Um, but uh, from the earliest days, I always wanted to join the military. There was no other thing that I ever wanted to do. And I think a lot of that is because I grew up with um, kind of the, not really the shadow of, but looking up to my grandfather as uh, uh, my idea of a hero. And he was killed in World War II, so obviously I never met him, but I grew up with his Uh, Like the flag that they gave my grandmother uh, with the silk maps they used to give aviators uh, back then. Because if you had paper ones and hit the water, they'd disintegrate. So you had these silk maps that could get wet for those guys uh, with his medals, black and white photos of him with his plane, that sort of thing. So um, I just naturally gravitated towards the military. Uh, Then when I was seven, I found out what SEALs were and that they, they had me from age seven on and i found out what seals were through an old movie called the the Frogmen, and it's an old black and white film that shows some guys climbing up over the beaches and blowing up obstacles and i asked my dad who these guys were and he didn't really know he knew the name of the movie it was the frogman so he told me they're Frogmen, but i uh, told me to go ask my mother and uh so i went and asked her and we went down to the local library did a little research and Found out that, uh, hey, SEALs are special operations guys and the training is some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military and they're a pretty elite fighting force. So when I was seven years old, uh, second grade, they had me. I didn't need to hear anything else other than that. And uh, just stayed on that path uh, up until a couple of years ago.
0: That's all yeah they didn't really have a whole lot of resources back then I mean the like today today's generation they have all kinds of books they have all kinds of movies and that kind of, that kind of thing but they didn't really have those kind of resources for you back then so those few limited movies is what you had to work on
1: That's it you know they uh you couldn't just google seals you couldn't google special forces you couldn't google you know CIA intelligence officer or anything like that you just uh kind of heard about things saw them in movies maybe got a reference here and there in a book or two but um for the most part growing up in the eighties, a lot of the information that I got was, um, from the protagonists of novels that like I'm writing now. So from guys like David Morrell and Dave, uh, Nelson DeMille and AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock. Tom Clancy. Uh, so guys like that, that had protagonists that had backgrounds in special operations or backgrounds in intelligence. And those were backgrounds that I wanted to have one day. So, uh, I naturally gravitated towards that and I always loved reading. I always loved learning and, uh, then knew that, Hey, after the military, I'm going to write books like these ones that I love reading so much. So as I was getting to the end of my time in the military, I started writing and, uh, the terminal list was the result.
0: Yeah. The terminal list that ended up being a really good book. Uh, I was able to read, I mean, it's a decent sized book. I think it was around three hundred fifty and 400 pages or so. And I was able to read it in like a week just cause I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. I caught myself one night. I was up to like one o'clock in the morning sitting there reading it. Cause it was, I just couldn't put it down.
1: Nice. Nice. I love it. That's the, uh, that's the point. That's the point of the thriller. So I'm glad to, glad to hear it. And then, uh, yeah, with, with True Believer, it's a continuation of that story. And, uh, growing up, I also found out about, um, kind of Joseph Campbell that, uh, It was interviewed by Bill Moyers on a series called The Power of Myth. And it talked about really the hero's journey across culture and how all these cultures that had never, uh, never met each other, never interacted, uh, had a similar mythology and a, a similar hero's journey that typically started with a reluctant hero. That's, uh, that's pulled into a journey of some sort that, uh, goes through a crucible and then emerges transformed on the other side. So I was, uh, I was fascinated by it because when I was a kid watching that series in, uh, I think 1988 is when it came out, but they talked about how it inspired George Lucas for, uh, the star Wars story. And, uh, so when I'm writing, I'm very cognizant of that, that that's, uh, that each individual novel and then, uh, overarching a series has to fit within that, uh, that paradigm somehow. So it's, uh, it's that hero's journey that resonates with us all and has resonated with us since we've told the, the first stories around the campfire, you know, thousands of years ago.
0: So a lot of your writing style now, is it, is it you try to keep it very similar based on your influences early on in life or do you try to switch it up or is it, is it kind of a a combination between the two?
1: Yeah, I think we're all just a, you know, we're all the experiences that we've had in life. And then uh, the, the wisdom that we've uh, kind of drawn from that. But uh, my early education in storytelling was all those guys, all those masters of the thriller genre that I mentioned earlier. So those were my professors in the art of storytelling early on. So I think that really influenced me. Um, I knew what I, things that I liked, things that I didn't like. And as far as a style, it's just, uh, just me. It's just, uh, it's not really like I'm trying to be like anybody else out there. It's uh, it's, it's just, you know, everybody has their, their own voice. And uh, so I'm very fortunate that, especially with that first novel, uh, it really resonated with readers. And I think that's because it's, even though it's 100% fiction, the emotions and feelings that the protagonist feels along the way are things that I felt downrange. So um, I took those emotions and just applied them to a completely fictional narrative, but, it resonates with people, I think, because it reads like it's real and that's because the feelings are real. Um, and it ended up being a much more therapeutic process than I thought at the outset. So I got to revisit some of those experiences, revisit some of those feelings and then, uh, use them in a constructive way on the pages of the the first novel. And the same thing held true for the second one. So exploring those feelings again and, um, putting them into the pages of true believer.
0: Yeah, you, Whenever you mentioned that it reads like it's real, it's, it's definitely true. Cause whenever I was reading it, I could definitely. It was almost like watching a movie, but like within my mind. I mean, it was it was really the, nice. the level of detail that you put into it. I know a lot of that comes from your time in the military and your experience, and just just your writing style. But it was so easy to read that, like I said, I, I mean, you can just kind of lose track of time and just just read right through, and it, it feels like you're watching a movie inside of your mind.
1: It's is really? Well written. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate that. And, uh, yes, yeah, funny you mentioned movie. Hopefully there'll be some news on that front soon. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. I was
0: hoping that you would mention, cause I, I didn't, I wouldn't ask cause you never know which <laughs> way it's going to go, but I'm a, right, that's
1: good to right. hear, things can derail the morning they start shooting. I've heard uh, all sorts of stories about that happening in Hollywood. So I'm going to keep my expectations low. So I'm pleasantly surprised if it, uh, if it gets made, but they've got a great, uh, great crew attached to it. Great director, great, great star. Um, funding screenwriter, the whole thing. So, uh, that's great.
0: That's great. So going back to your time in the seals when you were there as a sniper, right?
1: Right. So I started enlisted and, uh, I wanted to do that because, uh, once again, popular culture, the influence of popular culture (laughs) growing up, they always had those Vietnam movies. I watched, they always had this brand new officer that would show up in Vietnam and you know, not be all clean shaven, short haircut, um, and jump right in there and start uh, start enforcing all these uniform standards and uh, march his guys right into an ambush. So it was like, every single Vietnam movie and TV show from the 80s had that guy. And I didn't want to be that guy. So uh, I wanted to come in enlisted and learn the trade and establish a reputation and kind of start in the mailroom and work my way up and then decide if, uh, if I was going to be an officer you know, later on. And I wanted to be a sniper. And I knew that typically officers were not snipers. So wanted to go that route and that's what i did so came in enlisted uh went to buds made it through buds got to my first seal team and uh, that was pre-september 11th and then one of that first deployment came back went to sniper school went to free fall school and then went through that next workup deployed and then a couple weeks into that was september 11th and that's of course when the the world really changed for for all of us and and we got on that uh that uh that deployment rotation and kept going back and forth to Iraq and Afghanistan for the the rest of my time in. What was the
0: environment like in the military prior to 9-11 versus post 9-11? I mean, I'm sure that that there had to be some kind of something going on as far as just the mentality around the job that you were there to do. And as soon as those towers got hit, I'm sure everything just kind of went into overdrive.
1: Oh, yeah. So when we uh, finished Buds and we got to our first SEAL teams, uh, all of us thought, hey, we're going to get issued these pagers and we're going to, uh, you know, get these calls in the middle of the night and we're going to zip off and save the world and then get back in time for beers the next day. And that wasn't really how it was. You showed up at your first SEAL team and the uh, the older guys, you know, handed you a mop and said, you know, mop that floor, paint that wall, change that light bulb, clean the bathroom. And you did new guy stuff. Um, and your job was to be prepared to go to war. Um, you know, you started training and going through all the different, uh, blocks of training that you need to go through to get ready to deploy. So you learn, go to land warfare for a month. You go up to, you know, do Alaska to do some cold weather warfare training. You, uh, maybe go to, uh, to Washington state, do some stuff up there. You do some close quarter battle stuff, urban warfare, diving operations, jump operations, all things like that. Um, just to get ready, ready to go. Um, but there wasn't really anything to go do yet. Uh, so that first deployment, yeah, it was different. You're just training another nation's security forces uh, for the most part. Um, and then September 11th hit and that that paradigm changed. And uh, now you were deploying not just for presence, but for purpose. And you'd go downrange and obviously you're going to Iraq, you're going to Afghanistan and, uh, and you're doing the job that you before September 11th that you thought you were going to do. So for most of us, it was like, all right, this is our, this is our time. Our, uh, you know, our country needs us and, and, uh, it's time to, time to step up and, and do it. So if I had any, any designs on leaving the military before my 20 year mark, um, after September 11th, I was all in, uh, there was no way I was leaving. And, uh, and off we went and we thought everybody was afraid they were going to miss it. That was the funny part. Like, uh, we thought, Oh man, we're going to miss it. Somebody else got to go to Afghanistan first or somebody else is in Iraq first. Oh man, it's going to be done. We're not going to get in there. And, uh, you know, here we are, uh, creeping, creeping up on 20 years, uh, later in a little bit here. Um, so yeah, there was, uh, there was no risk of missing it.
0: Yeah. Little did they know they weren't, they were going to be there for a couple of decades, right?
1: Yep. Exactly. Exactly. We still have guys, uh, guys downrange now and I try to, you know, every day I think about that as I'm sitting here in Park City looking at a beautiful view and maybe having a glass of wine with my, with my wife in the evening and the sun's going down. I try to remember that, uh, that's coming up elsewhere in the world and we still have guys in uniform out there that are going up and going out taking the, taking the fight to the enemy. So I try to, try to keep that in my mind and remember that, uh, that they're out there.
0: And so your, uh, introduction into, into hunting was kind of related to your training in the seals as a sniper. Is that correct? I think I remember hearing you yeah. on, I think it was the That's it. maybe Order a Man podcast with Ryan. Or maybe it was Jocko. I remember you getting yeah. into that quite a bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I always wanted to hunt growing up and, you know, I shot, we'd go to the, we'd go to the range and I'd shoot with my dad and all that sort of thing, but we never hunted because he didn't, uh, he didn't hunt. So, uh, but I always wanted to, I saw some other kids go out with their dads and I was always so jealous and I always wanted to get out there and hunt, but I just didn't, uh, didn't grow up with that tradition. So, uh, but I was drawn to it and, then, yeah, after sniper school, they, uh, they started instituting these, uh, sniper sustainment programs. Um, and off I went to a place up in Washington state and I think I, I won't name where it is cause I don't know if they, I don't think they advertise it, but it's a beautiful place and essentially, you know, right on the Canadian border up there. And that was my first real hunt and got my first deer up there. And that was, uh, in 2000 and, uh, you know, I was, I was hooked before I'd even done it. But after that, you know, it was just such a natural thing to do and uh, I got to bring the, bring the, bring the deer back and, and uh, grill it up at home for my wife. And uh, it was her first experience with that too. Uh, And then of course, September 11th happens. And then we just got way busy for, uh, for a long time. And, uh, it was just go, 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 get ready to deploy kind of some shortened, uh, workups to get, just get back out, get down range, get the pressure on the enemy. Um, and then it was not until a few years later that uh, I jumped back into the sniper sustainment program and they started taking people hunting again and, uh, in different places, not just up there in Washington state, but a, a few other places too. So, I uh, got to do that. And then I didn't really, Go all in on it until because, you know, when you're in special operations, particularly as a as a leader as I was at that time, um, I felt like I had to, everything I possibly everything I was doing I had to be focused on making myself a better combat leader. Um, so any off time I was reading, I was studying the enemy, um, training, getting ready to go. Uh, but when I got back from uh, from my last deployment, my daughter she um, uh, just naturally expressed an interest in hunting. So at that point we went, uh, we went all in and we made up for lost time. So, uh, we've been, uh, been into it for, for quite a, I mean, really all we've eaten since then has been wild game. So we're uh, very fortunate to have been able to go to a lot of different places, hunt with some amazing people and, uh, and really kind of play catch up for all the time that I was, uh, I was not hunting.
0: Great. I was going to ask you what your family thought about, you know, bringing home wild game all the time what their opinions are on it. But if that's all you guys are eating, I'm sure that I guess that answers that.
1: Yeah, no, it was great. My daughter's room in Coronado, California, when we lived there, with uh, you know, beach bungalow type house and people would come in and man, they're taxidermy everywhere and in my daughter's room. And I think she got it Well, she got her first deer when she was seven. And, uh, so I have her first deer up there, I have her first buck, I have her first spike. Um, and so people really in Coronado, California don't, uh, don't hunt that much. So, uh, friends would come over and just be amazed at this little, uh, seven year old room had these uh, amazing animals on the wall but uh you know every time we pull something out of that freezer and, and grill it up we talk about where it came from and we talk about the the trip we were on together and you know who got it and uh then say hey you know, to our daughter thank you uh for for doing this or my wife hey this is yours thank you for for doing this and we talk about it and kind of relive that uh, experience and know exactly where it came from exactly what it was eating and uh and get to share in that experience together so it's uh uh, yeah, it's just part of our part of our life.
0: Yeah, just just hunting, especially when it comes with family. And my, my son, he's five, and he's just now kind of getting that interest into hunting. He he's already set in the blind with me a couple of times, and anytime I go out now, he's asking if he can go. So it's it's great whenever the kids are really starting to gain an interest into hunting, because I mean, it solidifies that natural feeling of wanting to get out into nature and pursue animals.
1: Oh yeah. And for us, it's, uh, you know, like soccer games, lacrosse games, stuff like that. Tennis matches will only last so long, but you can always go up in that, uh, that stand with your, with your kid, no matter how, how old you get, you can always go out, uh, go out hunting together. So that's something that we'll, we'll always have. And, uh, that's, and today there's so many distractions. Obviously we have all of these iPads and iPhones and it's just so crazy. So it's nice to be able to put those down, step away from that and uh, get outside together in nature and really spend some, some quality time together. Um, so there's just, yeah, too many benefits really to, to count. And, and now I'm, cause I'm very fortunate now in that I have a, um, an owner operator of a, a hunting operation in Lanai, Hawaii. So we get to, to go out there. We're actually going next week right before the book tour kicks off and, uh, axis deer and mouflon sheep but uh axis deer meat over there is so good
0: i've heard they're really good uh, they're they're very quick they're very athletic and i think that probably has something to do with with how they ended up tasting just because their their muscles ha- has a lot of that fast twitch fibers and i'm sure it's very tender because it's probably lean that kind of thing now i've heard a few guys who've mentioned axis deer hunting they say that it's Just some of the best wild game meat that you can get,
1: yeah. It's so good. And then we have a butcher over there, Bob the Butcher, that uh, I mean, he's such a character, yeah, it's so great. Uh, he, he keeps uh, I mean, he keeps bones on the back strap and it look, it looks like a rack of lamb when you get it. And it is so cool to be able to to uh, you know, throw that on the trigger and smoke those things up, and they just look amazing when they come off. So, uh, yeah, it's a, a yeah, a blast. And and Axis Deer, yeah, think. They came, they're dodging tigers original in their, uh, originally in their national habitat. So, uh, and then they're, they're an exotic, of course. So that's, uh, that means 365 (laughs) days a year they're being hunted. So it's, uh, it's a great place to, to go. And, uh, especially if you're a bow hunter to get out there and really test your skills when it's not, uh, when it's not uh, hunting season, um, over here for, uh, for white tail or mule deer or something.
0: Yeah, they're really tough to hunt, aren't they? Just because they are, you know, used to dodging tigers and that kind of thing.
1: (laughs) Exactly. There's that. And there's so many of them. You got a bunch of eyeballs out there on you. So they're, they're, they're a little jittery and then the winds out there are wild too. So it's, uh, sometimes when there's no wind, it's extremely difficult. Um, and then sometimes those swirling winds really can get you as well. So it's a, it's a great place to go to really, uh, you know, test your, test your abilities and, and, uh, and learn a lot because you know that if you mess up that, uh, you're probably going to get another opportunity, not, uh, not too, too long down the road because there's so many of them out there.
0: Yeah, uh, I heard John Dudley and Cameron Haynes. They did a podcast episode, yeah. maybe I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks ago, where they were talking about doing some axis deer hunting. Yeah, uh, yeah, they they were talking about pretty much if you were able to put an axis deer on the ground, then in in one eye, then you've pretty much got it all figured out. Because from there, it's it's all pretty much cupcakes and rainbows
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah they have a good time dudley's been out there so that's the that's the hunting operation that i've been involved in and uh they've been going out there dudley's been i think three or four times now maybe and uh, Andy Stump's been out there with John Barclow from Sitka. And so we've had a a great group of, of guys that uh, continue to go out there. Of course, Rogan goes out there and talks about it on his podcast quite a bit and he's a, he's a great guy. And so, um, yeah, it's an an amazing group of people that uh, that I've gotten to meet over the years through hunting. And I feel very fortunate for that as well. Just, uh, such a great crew, which is why I'm so bummed. I missed everybody out here at Total Archery Challenge this week. Were you here for it? No, I, I didn't make it
0: out. Actually, I live in Kentucky and, uh, the one in Pennsylvania is the one that is closest to me. It's only about, it. probably about four or five hours from here. Okay. Then they usually have it at the end of May, beginning of June. I haven't been able to make it out yet, but uh, I'm definitely get, getting my eyeballs on the one for next year. So I'm, I'm hoping to be able to make it out to the one in Pennsylvania that they have. It's on the eastern side of Pennsylvania. I think it's uh, Seven Springs, I think is what it's called.
1: Nice. So nice. Yeah.
0: And, uh, I'm hoping to be able to make it out to that one.
1: Uh, it's so much fun. I've done it uh, a couple times now and it's a blast. So I think next year um, I will forego my traditional New York experience, publishing experience that happens around this time and uh, make sure that I'm here for total Arch- archery challenge in park city and then go up to Montana as well. Uh, because book three has a pretty serious archery component to it. And uh, as both a kind of a therapy for the main character and then it comes into play also, um, in the climactic chapters of the, of the novel. So I have a good, uh, good excuse to get out there.
0: That's funny that you mentioned
1: that it's therapy because I mean,
0: it it almost really is. I mean, whenever you're having, you know, tough days or you just need to go out clear your head, just go out and shoot, you know, 20, 30, 40 arrows. And it, it has that same kind of effect.
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, I remember reading Zen and the art of archery in, uh, in high school and, uh, yeah, I, I, I revisited that for this third novel to incorporate some of those principles into into this third novel as I develop the, both the characters and then use those skills uh, as I get near the end of the novel. So uh, I'm super excited about it. And it's a great excuse then to uh, to make sure that I'm at Total Art Archery Challenge next year with a, yeah. a bunch of guys that, uh, that I've gotten to know over the years. So it's just bringing such great people together. You know, it's uh, it's so much fun. So I uh, got a Black Rifle Coffee guys out there and, uh, you know, I got Gritty Bowman out there. We got Dudley out there, Stumps out there. Jocko's up there in Montana right now, so the whole crew's together. Yeah, he's shooting now. That's we awful. did a uh, thing in uh, June last year uh, where we all got together, and I think that was his first time shooting. But Dudley made him a bow and uh, gave him some lessons, and he's uh, he's all about it. So they, I think Dudley just put some stuff online with him today shooting, and you know makes a great shot. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's it's a great way to bring people together and get people outdoors. And total archer challenge just growing year by year. So it's such a such a cool thing to be involved with.
0: That's great. That's, that's awesome. You're going to have to line up your next release where it's not lined up with total lottery challenge. Maybe do it in the, I don't know, I know. In the spring or something.
1: <laughs> I know Well, there's this thriller fest, which is a, uh, I guess it's a convention. I guess you'd call it of, uh, of authors, agents, publishers, uh, aspiring authors, fans, and brings everybody together on these different panels in New York. And that's what I've done the last two years. Um, but next year, uh, having the book be so archery centric and archery focused. Uh, I think I'll have to forego that and uh, get on the mountain.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great. So what really, what really led you to getting into fiction writing? Cause I mean, I, there's a lot of seals out there. Like like you said, Jocko, uh, Marcus Luttrell, David Goggins. I've been fortunate enough to be able to read all their books. They all wrote really great nonfiction books, but you're the first seal that I know of that has at least been in the, you know, the mainstream that has really gotten into fiction writing. So what got you into fiction writing? Why, why fiction rather than nonfiction?
1: Yeah, you know, the, the, there's plenty of guys that have done way more than I did in the in, in real life that uh, uh, have a lot more to tell on as far as the, on the nonfiction side of the house. But for me, I just always wanted to write fiction since I was a little kid. It was just, I knew I was going to go into the military. I knew it was going to be special operations. I knew it was going to be SEAL teams. And then I knew eventually I'd write fiction in this genre, just like the guys I read growing up. And uh, so that's that that was really, really it. Those are the two things that I knew I was going to do with my life. And so as I was kind of wrapping up one, getting to the end of that 20-year mark in the, in the military, knowing that I was not going to tactically lead guys on the battlefield anymore. Um, then uh, it was time to, time to get out, time to take care of my family, and time to see if I could give this, uh, this writing thing a go. And I was always going to write two because uh, there's too many stories of people that write one, and it, uh, it just doesn't catch on, doesn't take off. And they write a second one. And that's the one that hits and the one that uh, the example of that that most people will know would be John Grisham. And of course, he wrote uh, Time to Kill first and he couldn't give that book away. And then he wrote The Firm and that one is optioned by Tom Cruise. They make the movie. And, you know, we've had a John Grisham novel uh, legal thriller every year since. But if he'd stopped at that first one, then he'd still be practicing law in some little law office and just be miserable. Uh, But he, he kept with it. And, you know, much like Bud's, never quit. And uh, an author, Brad Thor, when I first started down this path, he gave me some advice. And he said, the only difference between a published author and an unpublished author is that the published author never quit. And that really rang true for me. Um, I could really relate to that. So I was always going to write two. So I started writing True Believer, the second one, novel, before I'd even submitted the first one to Simon & Schuster. Um, so this, I started this one in the the summer of 2016. Um, so I've been at this a while now and it's just coming out, uh, July 30th, but, uh, I was always going to do two. And I was just very fortunate that that first one, uh, took off and really resonated with people. And now we're now third ones in the third ones come in the hopper.
0: Yeah, that's great. So did you ever plan on doing the third one or were you just going to kind of see how things went for the first two?
1: Yeah, so if the first two didn't didn't catch on, then I was going to reevaluate my choices and uh, probably have to fall back to a contingency plan. Uh, it's always good to have uh, secondary and tertiary plans, so uh, so I had those in the works as well. But I, I was definitely going to give it two books, my absolute all, and then I was going to reevaluate and uh, maybe that would have meant another a third or a fourth or a fifth. But um, who knows? I was just going to all I knew I was going to take a breath at that point and reevaluate. But uh, I got very fortunate with how the first one went and uh, very fortunate how this uh the second one is beginning its launch and very excited about the third one that i'm putting the finishing touches on now and that i'll be editing for the next few months because it's the one i've wanted to write since i was in sixth grade uh really inspired by i don't know if you've ever read it the book called the most dangerous game it's really a, a short story uh by a guy named richard connell written in 1923 and really it's a story that uh it well it it has inspired quite a few uh, books and movies and television shows over the years, but it's uh, really about the hunting of man. And I always wanted to write that since I first read it in the sixth grade and wanted to drop it into, at the time, you know, the geopolitical backdrop back then in the 80s, but um this third one is that story really with the characters from the first two novels um, dropped into today's geopolitical landscape. So I'm um, very excited about that one. And yeah, I feel very fortunate to, to be doing something I'm so passionate about and that I love so much.
0: One of the biggest things that I have uh, admired with you and uh, respect with you for the, the, I guess it's been about a year that I've been following you on social media and listen to your different interviews on podcasts and stuff, but just your ability to, really hone in on your, I guess, quote unquote, next mission. So I I feel like a lot of military members, I I wasn't in the military. I never served in the military, but I have, you know, just as many millions of other Americans have. They have family members and friends in the military, but just your ability to find your next mission in writing has been really, it's been admirable. It's been very respectful, very, very uh, respectable, I guess would be a better way of saying it. I mean, how important is it for somebody that has served in the military to find, I guess, their quote unquote next mission?
1: Right. So I think it's any transition in life, really. It doesn't have to be the military, but that's just the one that I have experience with. Uh, Now that I live here in Park City, I see it with Olympic athletes up here uh, over the years and meeting and getting to know a few professional athletes. You see it in those ranks as well. Um, But it can be any transition in life, whether it's job, whether it's, uh, you know, professional or personal. Um, But the importance of finding that next mission and finding that next purpose uh, is uh, vitally vital importance. Um, And I saw it as I was had my last couple of years in the military. I wasn't uh, wasn't deploying anymore. I was making that transition and I saw people that couldn't really leave it behind. And it's uh, special operations, particularly, you know, my experience in the SEAL teams is that it's very difficult to leave that behind because it's uh, such an intense lifestyle. Uh, you're living for something greater than yourself. You're living for the guy to your right and left. Your mission is, um, you know, for, for something bigger than yourself. It's for the, for the country. Um, and replicating that on the outside is next to impossible. Like you're, you're probably not going to do it. And I saw a lot of people that couldn't leave it behind. Um, you know, they stayed living in Virginia beach or Coronado, uh, kept visiting, visiting the teams or visiting the, visiting the buds compound, going to a lot of the, uh, foundation type events that, uh, benefit seal related causes because staying, going to the same bars, the same grocery stores that they'd been uh, going to while they were in the teams, running into their, their old friends that are still in the teams or the, the families of those people that are going downrange still, um, and I think that makes it extremely difficult to make that transition and to identify what's important to you going forward. So, so I saw that and you know made a, a conscious decision that that was going to be one chapter of my life, and it was always going to inform the next chapter, and it's always going to be a part of me and is a huge part of who I am because I would wanted to do it my whole life. Um, did it for so long. We were at war for for quite a bit of that time. Um, but it's not going to be the so the only thing that defines me. Um, it's just going to uh, be a part of me, just like any other experience that you have in life, whether it's in the military or not. So, so I identified that early on, and uh, you know, my, for, for me, and you might have heard me talk about it before. Um, you know, I was kind of handed a little bit of that. Uh, next mission because we have a, a special needs middle child that requires 24-7 care forever. So in, in some instances, you're, you're handed that next purpose and that next mission. Uh, and for me, that next mission is really making sure that he um, is set for a, a lifetime of, of full-time care. Um, but I was also very fortunate in knowing what I was passionate about uh, as far as a profession to move into, and that was writing. So uh, that was just say It was a calling, I'd say. So, just like the military was a calling, uh, writing, being an author uh, is a calling as well. So, I really, I've never felt like I've had a a, a job. I guess I'd say it's a it's more of a, a profession, a calling, and a passion. So, uh, so I think identifying that as you are making a transition, or well before, and identifying the things that are important to you, so that you know what to say yes to and what to say no to, almost before the questions even asked. So, if And for me, what that was, that was, that was freedom. So if something didn't, uh, an option or opportunity didn't fall within, uh, that umbrella of freedom, both, uh, financial and schedule, then I didn't even need to think about it. Um, I didn't need to waste any time talking to my wife about it, researching, uh, where, where is this job going to take us? Um, nothing. It was just, oh, it didn't, didn't fit the, didn't fit, the, those things that I've identified as important. Well, it's an immediate no. So I think it's important to, in any transition in life to identify those things that are important to you. So you want, you'll be more effective and efficient as you make your decisions, uh, moving forward.
0: Yeah, there's that ability to just kind of, like you said, just identify what you want and what you want to prioritize in your life is just something I feel like a lot of people just, just struggle with and it ends up making them miserable as a, in the process. So I think the way you've approached it where you just basically determine like, is this going to fit what we want out of our lives or not? And you're able to, you know, like like you said, you don't have to waste time sitting there discussing it and spending you know, arguing over, over different things. You, you've already predetermined the the path that you want. And, and as a result, you're able to, you know, live, live
1: freely. Yep. No, exactly. That's uh, so. I think even just writing it down, and you might have to, you know, brainstorm a little on it, or talk to a spouse about it, but figure out, hey, what's important to us? What's important to us individually? To us as a family? Um, and uh, and what are we passionate about going forward? And really, uh, you know, identify it and write it down so you have those things so you know. Oh, look at that! Look at all this discussion we had. We pulled these three things out that are important to us. And as we move forward here, and these different options and opportunities um, pop up along the way, well, we're not going to get pulled off our track because we know that even though it might hit one of these three things, well, it didn't hit the other two, or maybe it hit two of them, but not the third. That's all the thought you need to put into it. It didn't fit all three done moving forward. So it's, uh, I think it was been, it's been very helpful for me to, uh, have been able to do that as I made that transition from the military, which is, um, you know, traditionally something that, uh, that people do struggle with. Did you
0: use that same kind of strategy whenever you guys were planning on, going out to Utah and moving out permanently to Utah. Use that same kind of yes or no strategy.
1: Exactly. Uh, it was a little different in that we didn't think we could move because of our uh, our middle child's special needs right. and where uh, how he was set up in San San Diego. We thought <clears throat> we thought that uh, okay, we're tied to to San Diego really forever. Then we took a we took a vacation with him for the first time, and we came out here and we brought somebody with us to help, and we realized that hey, we can do it. We can uh, we can move somewhere. We're not we're not tied to San Diego. So that was a, a little bit different for us, and then but it did fit. Into my thinking of, hey, it is, it will be healthy to make a clean break with uh, with the military, and uh, not just um, psychologically, but physically. And so, uh, when we thought, thought, when we found out, hey, we can, uh, we can move out here, we can, we can do this. That it it was the right move for us to to make both a psychological and a physical break with uh, with the Navy.
0: Yeah, that's. I think it's great that you were able to, you know, really approach it with that kind of kind of mentality even though you had you know things going on with with your middle son you go at home and you know just you tested the waters a little bit and then you really just went after it and really found that that next mission i think it's a great and very very admirable thing that you guys were were able to do and certainly something that's definitely inspirational
1: no, appreciate that. And and we love it out here. I mean, we were in California. California was great to us. San Diego was great to us. Coronado was great to us. But it, it, when we crossed that border into Utah, for whatever reason, we just felt more free. Um, you know, you didn't have to worry about, uh, what, the, what is the magazine capacity on these pistols and rifles yeah, right. or, you know, like, now I can have a suppressor out here. Uh, does something have to have a bullet button on it or not? What? So it, it was, it might sound strange, but I felt it. It was a, it was like a visceral feeling when we crossed that border, you just felt more free. So this was a, this was a great move for us and we love being in the mountains and we love raising our kids up here, skiing and snowboarding and hunting and trail running and, uh, just. And it seems to have drawn, uh, people that also want to raise their kids in the same kind of environment. So, uh, it's a, it's a great place and we've, uh, we've found our home.
0: Yeah, that's great. So what's the, what's the hunting and outdoor recreation life around there? I think I already know the answer to this, but I gotta, I gotta hear it from you, from you. So what, what's the hunting like out there?
1: Yeah. It's not bad. Um, yeah, I got an amazing elk this year. Um, and gosh, it was like 45 minutes from, from the front door. Um, but a beautiful place and, oh man, it's crazy. I mean, I've been so busy that I haven't been able to explore it quite the way that I want to. And I do get, uh, because of the hunting operation and because of just, uh, you know, friends I have in the industry or whatever else, um, uh, I do, I'm very fortunate to get a lot of invites to go other places and the schedule is packed with all the, all the writing and, uh, taking care of the juggling, the family and the hunting and everything else. Um, so I, <laughs> I haven't, uh, explored Utah as much as I would like, cause I'm zipping off to all these other places to hunt. But, uh, yeah, it was amazing. My elk hunt here, what we, what we passed up, to get to what we eventually got was absolutely ridiculous. Um, but yeah, it was crazy. It was 250,000 acres. Um, uh, so it was, it was private land, but, uh, there's amazing public land hunting here, uh, as well. And, uh, yeah, I got a couple other ones coming up here in the fall. So I'm, I'm super excited to be here and I really want to do a lot more hunting, uh, within driving distance of my front door, rather than flying to these, uh, these places, uh, these days, because, uh, you know, to maximize my family time, especially when we're so, so busy with book tours and and everything else. It's, uh, it's nice to be able to, to zip off, do a hunt and zip back and not have to fly halfway around the world.
0: Yeah. Some of those best hunts are the ones that you can, you know, wake up in your own bed, go out, you know, spend the day out in the field, come back, sleep in your own bed. Those, those kind of hunts can, can definitely be, uh, be definitely a change in the, in the typical pace of Western hunting you got a backpacking, yeah, you got no, a, you great. know those backcountry type type style hunts.
1: Yeah, and this is a great great spot to be able to launch and because from San Diego, like you're going somewhere. I mean, you're, there is hunting around San Diego, and I I did do a little hunting around there. But um, from from here, it's a great blast-off point. Like from San Diego, just getting here, mm-hmm. um, whether it's by plane or or driving, um, I mean, that's a full day. <laughs> just to get here in order to launch into you know the this state or Idaho or Montana or Wyoming or Colorado but to have all those states and all those that amazing hunting um within a day's drive it, I feel so fortunate to to be surrounded by such uh, such beautiful land and I just I'm looking forward to exploring it with the kids and um yeah just just amazing um because from San Diego we had to we had to <laughs> put to get up and go somewhere whether that was lanai for Axis or we're on a, on a lease in Texas also which is nice to be able to get the kids out there and uh especially when we were in San Diego because they could kind of get to know a piece of land I think it's really important to uh for kids to revisit some of the same the same piece of land to get used to not to get used to it but to really know it um and uh, cause you can zip all around and you can learn a bunch of great stuff and it's all wonderful, but to really go out and, and know a piece of land, know the animals on it. there's, uh, there's something about that going back to that same piece of land every year, every hunting season and spending some significant time on the ground. There is, uh, I, I've seen it with my daughter and I took my son out there for the first time, our youngest one this, uh, this last year. And it's really cool for them to go out there and for the, my daughter to jump into a, a side-by-side or a four-wheeler and know exactly where she's going and hop out, and know how the gates work, get out there and and uh, uh, and, and and know which uh, which stand she's going to go to and, and what she can expect to see at what times of the day. And it's, uh, it's a really cool thing to do, I think, to go to the, a, a piece of land that the kids really get to know.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. That's something that uh, both of my kids, I've been fortunate enough to be able to take them out to the land that i hunt on and my son he could tell you just about where everything is there i mean he's been out there so many times that he knows where the tree stand set up he knows where we set the blind up last year he knows where the deer trails are that are coming in that kind of thing so it's really neat to be able to see kids as young as my like i said my son he's five and my daughter she's three and she's even starting to pick it up on some things too and just being nice. able to see them nice. you know really take ownership of those little pieces of land it's it's very refreshing to be able to be able to see those especially when kids nowadays they're they're typically, you know, face first into a phone or a tablet or T V screen or something. And be able to see them like, know, react oh with the, with nature is is, is really neat.
1: Yeah, gosh, it's hard to hard to compete with that, uh, with those digital devices, right. especially when we're on them all the time for work. Like it's like my mobile office, you know. Right. So I'm a, I know I have to I have to work on it as well. I kinda <laughs> I try to come into my actual office to to jump on it, but oh man, it's it's uh it's tough. We're kind of addicted to it too. Um but yeah, right here where we are, it's uh we have a couple of moose that come by all the time. We have mule deer coming by, elk. Uh, elk don't come right by our house, they come by down the road a little bit. But the moose and mule deer absolutely love this area and we had uh, a moose on our deck actually it was licking the trigger grill so soon after we moved in i have a great video of it um so after that we got a we got a, a gate on the deck but um yeah i know i'm amazing out here and i love you know being able to get out there with the kids like we we're just talking about ipads away iphones away whatever um and and that's one of the few places where you can really do that Um, is hunting and the other I found is on river rafting trips so every year we go to the we go down into river canyon there's no cell service which makes it uh, easy for me to put the phone away because there's no uh, oh just hold on one second I just got to return this text really quick and then I'll get back to you like there's there's not not even an option so so I love doing that every year we've been doing that for quite some time now and, uh, so b- bottom of a river Canyon for a few days and then, uh, then out hunting. Those are the, the two places that uh, that I love going with the kids cause we're not attached to our devices and that's when we get the uh, the best quality time together.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's, that's awesome. It's hard to, hard to beat those, those family moments out in, in the woods. I mean, even going out, you know, just doing a, doing a hike or that kind of thing is just, just getting out there and just kind of resetting and refreshing is, it's really, very important i think i think it's important just for family dynamic in general just because like you said i mean you just put those phones away and your attention has to be on the the wife and kids it has to be on those around you rather than than what the the screen that's in your pocket that i think it's very important that you know we take those times and just you know reset push the reset button and just refresh on on life and just mentally and just in general
1: oh absolutely we going out tonight uh and, uh, taking a nice hike up here in the mountain and I'm looking out my window right now, actually at the, at the trailhead. So, uh, yeah, I'm very excited to, to get out tonight with the family and get some fresh air and, uh, yeah, yeah, clear, clear my head from the, from the day and, uh, start thinking about some of the, uh, things I need to do to finish up book three and, and, uh, move on forward. So, uh, yeah, I love getting outside.
0: That's awesome. So I just want to switch gears on you real quick. So you've spent some time in South Africa, right? Was it South Africa this, this past fall?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, uh well for the second novel, uh I went to Mozambique and researched um uh Mo- well, went over there and I didn't really I had a kind a little bit of a plan about some of the things I wanted to learn some of the local language and I had about 10 or 15 different words I wanted to get in a few different local languages. I wanted to see the uh, pictures of the dirt, see the rocks, see the see uh uh, different trees and just just get to know the area a little bit, so I could weave some of that into the into the novel. Uh, local drinks, the uh, local beer made it in. Uh, some of the backgrounds, the professional hunters made it in, um, and then uh, the Chinese influence, uh, particularly there, uh, as far as logging operations, uh, mining operations, and then some of the poaching that goes along to uh, the meat poaching that goes along to support those operations. And then some of the, uh, uh, the poaching in that particular area, it was, uh, elephant tusks up there, but, uh, some of the poaching that goes on to, um, to feed that demand in Asia. Um, so I did that for the, the second novel for for True Believer, and I was finishing up edits on it. I was invited to go to South Africa to help train up an anti-poaching unit, and this anti-poaching unit had just got uh, new M4s, Glocks, and they hadn't used those before, so I went over there with a, a former Marine buddy of mine, and uh, we spent a little time out there just getting these guys familiar with those new weapon systems, uh, and what I really wanted out of that trip, so it wasn't totally altruistic uh, going over there, it was, I wanted to get into the the psychology of tracking and for the, the second novel, like, you know, I got into the, the kind of the science of it, but really for the third one, I really wanted to get into that psychology and I met some amazing people that are part of these anti-poaching units. And the ones I worked with, uh, were older. meaning they'd, they'd, uh, experienced some of the last day, days, or the last years of the Bush Wars. So from the mid nineties, those really kind of came to an end. And so they'd fought there. They'd grown up tracking animals. Uh, then they transitioned to tracking people. In the Bush Wars. And when they come came back, they kind of needed jobs. And so a lot of them went to work for uh, the police forces and became essentially like CSI for some of the uh, cities. So essentially Cape Town, Johannesburg, some of the smaller cities, you had these guys that were taking that experience of tracking animals, tracking people, and now applying it to an urban environment. And yeah, using the science of it, but really that psychology of, Hey, what's this person going to do next? That just committed this crime, committed this murder. Um, like what do we have here? That's physical evidence. And where's that going to take me? Um, and you might not have a trail of blood. You might not have something like that, but you might be able to get in the mind of that person. And that's just like they were getting the minds of the animals, essentially, that they're tracking, uh, and then the people that they're tracking in the bush wars. Well, now they're doing that, but from a law enforcement perspective. So now you have those three distinctly different chapters in these guys' lives. And now, They're part of anti-poaching units, so they're back to uh, tracking both animals and people, um, not in an urban environment anymore, but uh, on these preserves. And in the case uh, where I went in South Africa, it was specifically focused on uh, saving the rhino. Because in in uh, Asia, that rhino horn is worth more than more than diamonds, more than gold, more than cocaine, uh, more than uh, really anything on the black market. That rhino horn, uh, is feeding that demand in Asia for something that is essentially a. Uh, Fingernail, and you know in Mm -hmm. Asia they think that uh, it does everything from cure cancer to uh, uh, have some sort of aphrodisiac type properties. So uh, it's it's the the demand is insane, and as long as that demand is there, uh, just like we know here in the United States with our uh, our the drug issue, as long as the demand. Here for drugs, it's going to kept getting, it's going to keep getting fed um, by uh, Mexico, Central, South America. So uh, similar over there. As long as the demand's there in Asia, there's going to be somebody out there poaching that rhino. And for a while, they were uh, darting the rhinos and then cutting off the horns because they figured, okay, if, the, if there's the if the, we're taking the valuable part off, and it's going to grow back. Um, but if we're taking the valuable part off, then these poachers will not have a reason to kill them. And what happened is. That the poachers kill them anyway because they typically uh, get on these preserves at night, start tracking, and find the rhino, and then they'd find that it didn't have a horn, and they'd kill it so that they wouldn't waste time the next night tracking one that didn't have the horn. So it didn't really end up working. Um, But... Uh, being able to, to spend some time with those guys, talk to them about their history and then see what they're doing out there to help, uh, preserve some of the last rhino on earth was, uh, uh, well, it was an honor to be a part of it that's for sure. And it's, uh, it wove its way into the pages of both book, uh, uh, parts of book two and, uh, and book three.
0: Man, it's, uh, do they do any kind of, I mean, so it's the Asian cultures that take that horn. I'm guessing they probably... You know, grind it up, turn it into some kind of powder or something to use it. Is
1: that pretty typical? No, that's exactly it. Yeah, oh, I think yeah. it's uh, uh, my my research is a couple months dated now, but I think it was China and Thailand that are the two uh biggest offenders from what uh, from what I remember anyway. Um, but yeah, it's just sad that an animal will probably be going extinct because of uh, you know, a fallacy that's attached to its uh, its horn. And
0: there's no kind of Western medical research, I'm sure that they're even considering for the fact that, you know, it's not even doing what they're, what they're wanting it to do.
1: Yeah. There, there's a lot of initiatives out there that they're, they're taking, uh, particularly stars like movie stars, um, from Asia that are doing public service announcements to try to spread the word that, Hey, this stuff doesn't work. Like all you're doing is killing a rhino. You're not doing anything else. It is not helping cure cancer. It is not where it does not have <laughs> any other, uh, you know, sexual type things that you think it does, um, and you know, they're, so they're, there's all sorts of initiatives out there to try to educate people and try to, um, you know, to spread the truth about what's really going on and what they're what they're a part of um, by buying this rhino horn. So, uh, is it working? Uh, when I the data I looked at didn't seem it, it, things don't look hopeful. I'll put it uh, I'll put it that way. But you have people that are that are out there that are spending a lot of their own money to preserve the rhino. So these landowners in, uh, in South Africa in particular, uh, are spending vast amounts of money and resources to, uh, to try to save the rhino. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation though. No doubt about it. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, I hate to say losing battle, but, uh, long-term it doesn't look great. Yeah.
0: I think, uh, Netflix, they did a documentary. I think it was called trophy where, it, they were, there was different parts of it and one of the little sub stories that they did on it was a guy who basically sunk his entire fortune into saving yeah. like a white rhino, I guess it'd be I'm not sure what you would call it concession, some kind of uh, you know an area where white rhinos were. He basically took all the money that he had and he was a wealthy guy and sunk all of his money into it just to try to save this rhino population and basically at the end of the end of the film, they kind of reiterated, kind of came back to to his story at the end, and basically said, "Yeah, it's it's not looking good for him. It's it's almost a, it's almost a futile thing that he's doing, just because he's it's not really making a dent, just because the the demand is there. Therefore, the supply has to be there as well."
1: Yeah, no, that's tough. One. His name's John. I forget his last name right now, but yeah, I think it was CNN yeah. did it uh, called Trophy, and it's probably on Netflix now. But yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. That guy, he did. He sunk everything he had into, uh, into that project. Uh, yeah. Tough, tough situation over there, but, but being over there in the fall and, and doing that training and taking all those notes and learning so much from those guys about tracking. Uh, and they took me out and did a tracking course with me. And, uh, it was so cool to watch them work. Just, uh, just incredible. Um, but they, they invited me back this summer with the family. So I just got back a couple of few days ago, uh, family continued on and came back here. I stayed in New York for the, for some publishing stuff, but, uh, I got to go back there with my, with my family and, uh, explore Africa with them. So it was, uh, it was really cool to spend a few days, um, with, uh, with, uh, well, two of our kids, our middle one couldn't go, but, uh, with my wife and, and two of our kids out there and, uh, share a little bit, uh, of what I experienced in the fall with, with them. It was their first time there and we had a blast.
0: That's great. That's great. That sounds like a pretty awesome trip. There's a lot of controversy around African hunting and a lot of people don't want to really talk about it. I think a lot of it may just be that there's just a lack of information or, you know, anytime that somebody posts a picture of them, you know, doing a grip and grin with a, I don't know, a lion with Cecil the lion. I mean, how many years ago was that? A few years ago. And it just, there's a lot of people that, that kind of steer away from African hunting, but I feel like in Western society, especially with the the media the way it is and how quick they are to, you know, put those kind of pictures up. I think it's important that people really, really educate themselves on what's going on over in Africa just because of the poaching, you know, demand. There's there's just so many different aspects to it other than just, you know, some uh, rich white guy, you know, holding a giraffe or something. I mean, there's so many different elements to it.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a a lot going on there. That's, that's for sure. And it's very easy over, you know, lattes in New York and Los Angeles to, uh, to think we know what's best for people half a world away, um, you know, living in a village, the barely scraping by with uh, enough food to, to, to feed their families. Um, And, uh, and, you know, then we finish our lattes and go on to whatever we're going to do the rest of the day. Um, but when you're over there and you really talk to the people that are, that are involved uh, that live over there day to day, you know, let's take the lion one. That's a tough one to tackle. You know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, for somebody over here. And I totally understand um, to see how could how could killing a lion possibly uh, or how killing us even word, how killing a rhino, how does that, how can that possibly help? Um, well, then you over there and you talk to the people over there and you know, the, we, in this country, a lot of people thought we had a big, they had a big victory when we couldn't import lions back into the country anymore. So, you know, the one side high fived, uh, and, uh, you know, thought, great, they saved the lions. And then that was right about the time I was going over there to do the Mozambique research and got over there and found out that the local people were going to kill all the lions because now there was no value. No one was coming. There was, in fact, those lions were killing their livestock and posed a threat to them and their families. Um, you know, it's for somebody in a, you know, in a, a building in, you know, New York to, uh, to say, Oh no, we they, they shouldn't kill any of those lions. Uh, well, the wife and kids are sleeping with maybe just a, a little bit of thatch between them and a, a lion that's out <laughs> outside. You know, it's a, it's a little different story than when you're going back to, you know, your, your home in Greenwich. Um, so it's tough, you know, it's a tough thing to kind of wrap your head around. And then, when you have the science to it and let's just take the rhino, uh, when rhinos get older and they're past their, their, they're not breeding anymore. Well, you know, sometimes they do, they start killing younger rhinos. So that rhino is going to get killed over there. Somehow it's going to get killed, especially if it's, uh, killing three or four baby rhinos. Well, now you have one older rhino that's not breeding anymore. That's now just killed three new ones. And okay, well, let's say we have a few thousand of these rhinos left. Uh, now we just lost four or three, whatever. Um, so that bigger rhino is going to, that older one's going down somehow. Um, now that can either get, you know, auctioned off here in the States or in Europe or somewhere else and they can make money on it or not going to make any money for, uh, uh, that's going to go back to paying for these, uh, anti-poaching units, these patrols, these helicopters that fly, uh, to, uh, to patrol these areas, looking for poachers, uh, random patrols and vehicles that go night and day. Um, you know, that stuff's not free. That has to get paid for somehow, um, and the, and not even the and then the vets, the vet bills that go along with this sort of thing. Rhinos get sick, um, and there are vets that specialize in, uh, in in taking care of them. So they also cost money um the the drugs that are used to to tranquilize the the um the rhinos while they're worked on that that costs money um to keep them alive so it's uh, it's hard for people unless they really study it um over here uh and give it more than the cursory one or two sentences of, of thought and then move on to their their next issue um to really wrap their their heads around but it's uh it's more complex than uh than people give it uh you know credit for at uh, at first glance
0: yeah, I think whenever you break it down like that and you, you start throwing in, you know, those type of operations are going to require quite a bit of money to be able to to be able to keep going just because, I mean, uh, poaching, poachers are going to be putting a lot of their money that they're getting from, you know, their, their supply. So you almost have to counterbalance that with, you know, fight fire with fire. You have to get out there and you have to, all the things that are going to be required to have some kind of success, some level of success in fighting their efforts. Is going to require quite a bit of money. So the logical thing would be to if this if this rhino is going to already be killed anyways because it's you know damaging the local population, then logical thing would be you know to try to get several thousand dollars out of it for that purpose. Yep.
1: No, exactly. And then the meat poachers, people talk about that a little bit, you know, every now and again. And I mean, I didn't really understand all this and I just still don't understand all of it. Um, I'm still a student of this and I, I always will be. Um, but how the, the meat poaching, so you say you're, you have a mining operation, a timber, uh, a timber operation that comes in, uh, typically a Chinese, uh, operation comes in to, to kind of exploit the, the, the land and, um, they need to feed all these, all these workers. Well, the snares go out. And then the snare doesn't differentiate between a, a lion or a, a springbuck, um, so it's a it's a it's a very interesting dynamic going on over there, especially with the with the Chinese influence and now the Russian influence, which I uh, studied up on recently in some countries that made its way into the, the third novel that I'm finishing up now. Um, but just how the how the workers have to be fed. And, uh, the poaching that goes on to feed, uh, the, to feed these workers and how it, uh, sometimes gets, uh, animals that are, that are endangered or, you know, young lions, um, the ones that you wouldn't take out of the, of the population as a hunter. Uh, and it's, a it's, it's, it's a very interesting, uh, dynamic and complicated uh, to say the very least.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a good way of describing it. It's very complicated. It's very complex. There's a lot, a lot of moving parts that, I mean, just, I don't, I don't think anybody is going to have, you know, just the the normal lay person, especially in the Western culture is going to have a full grasp on every, every moving part that's going on over there. And just because our conservation models here in North America are just so totally different than, than what's going on in Africa.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think when people are going to take a, uh, a strong stand, on, on it, that, uh, they owe it to, um, you know, not the, just their friends at cocktail parties, they want to impress, but they owe it to the animals and the people that live with them in those areas that they're, uh, they're talking about to really understand what's happening. And you can, I mean, you can study it and you can read about it as much as you, as you want. Um, and if with an open mind, maybe you can understand it, but really going there and talking to the people that are involved day to day. Um, I think that, that would open, uh, open the aperture for, for a lot of people on what's, uh, on what's really going on over there. Absolutely, I think you I think you hit the nail on the
0: head on that one. And you actually included a lot of the, a lot of your experiences over in Africa in this second novel, and I thought that was that was a very interesting section of the book. And it was I, I learned a lot from just reading that that section of the book. I don't want to give anything away. I kind of let you talk on that part, but that, I mean there was there were so many different things that you mentioned there that the characters mentioned that in, and it kind of happened in the story that that really just educated me on on the kind of, kind of things that are actually going on over there.
1: Yes. I wanted to, you know, it's a, it's a political thriller, but I also wanted to weave in a little bit of education on, uh, on hunting and conservation into the, into the pages of, uh, what is essentially popular fiction. Um, so I thought it was kind of my, my responsibility as a hunter to, and a citizen to, to do that. Uh, and also I didn't want to deal with what happened in the first novel, which was very traumatic. Didn't want to deal with that in just a paragraph and then move on. Um, it seemed like that would probably be the easier way to go, but I really wanted to develop this character, um, and develop a few other characters along the way, but primarily the protagonist, uh, James Reese. And how does he, how does he find that next mission in life? How does he find his purpose, especially when he thinks he's dying? Um, and how does he learn to live again? And, you know, that happens with a lot of, a lot of veterans dealing with, uh, TBI and PTSD. Um, they, they need to learn to, to live again. And, uh, and so I wanted to explore, that in the pages of this novel for someone who's clearly dealing with PTSD from the death of his family um, and the traumatic events in the first novel a move, and it's going on that that hero's journey, that reluctant hero's journey. Uh, and a part of that journey, he ends up in Mozambique and learns to live again in the, uh, in the wilds of, of Mozambique. And while there, repurposes his own skills uh, I guess a little bit like I did in South Africa teaching some of the uh, the anti-poaching unit guys over there how to use the m4 and Glock but uh, you know repurposes those old skills for a new mission um, and uh, and really embraces that new purpose until the government tracks him down because of uh, an experience he had in Iraq uh, with uh, uh, an Iraqi army officer who ends up going uh, kind of going rogue and uh, switching sides Um, and that government needs uh, James Reese to track this guy down. So, and that was, (laughs) that was actually inspired by some uh, events that happened to me in Iraq um, uh, that formed the basis for the, for the novel uh, where someone I worked with ended up disappearing. And um, uh, I won't go, too deeply into it, but, uh, I thought, Hey, what if this, this, I was to make this a lot more interesting and turn this into fiction. But, uh, but yeah, that first, I couldn't think of a, a better place for, for James to learn to live again than the, the wilds of Mozambique, especially once I was there, uh, experiencing that, uh, that area, talking to the professional hunters, the trackers, um, and, uh, and really diving in to, to that experience. So, um, I just wanted to share that, uh, with, with the reader and, uh, not just deal with the the trauma of the first novel in a paragraph or two,
0: and I, I've said it several times, but I, I've really enjoyed reading, having the opportunity to read both of those, and what the way you intertwine those because I mean, the Terminal List it's it's really a story about revenge. I mean, it's really this these terrible things happen to to the Reese, and um, you know he's he's getting his revenge pretty much, and then. I feel like the, the second one is just kind of a way for him to redeem himself. It's, it's like a, re- a restoration story almost. And the way you intertwine both of those is, it's really, really neat. And I'm, I'm already looking forward to number three.
1: Uh, awesome thank you yeah second one is really a story of redemption and I like to call it a story of violent redemption um, the first one yeah I right read at the base level it's a story of revenge without constraint and I really I took a, a yellow sticky pad and I got this from Stephen Pressfield who wrote a book called uh, Gates of Fire uh, I wrote another one Legend of Bagger Vance and he's an amazing guy but he has a few books also on creativity in general and he brings you know he comes from the the writing tradition the War, of War. Uh, I that one. Yeah, War of Art yeah War of Art Turning Pro The Authentic Swing uh, Do the work. So he has these these great books, and they all essentially say the same thing. You know, they say uh, be a professional, sit down, and do the job. Um, but either in, it's either in one of those books, or I heard it when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, uh, and he said that he would take the theme of his novel and he'd write it on a yellow sticky and put it down next to him as he was writing. And I think in his case it was the maybe a typewriter, but in my case I put it right on my uh, MacBook Air as I was writing. So I wrote revenge on that yellow sticky and it was right there just uh on the left-hand side of my keypad um the whole time I was writing. So if a paragraph or a chapter or something didn't either directly or indirectly tie back to that theme of revenge, then I just edited it out and cut it right away. And I think that helped because once it got to New York, I thought there was going to be a ton of edits and really there were, weren't very many. There was just a few. Um and so that really helped keep me on track. Now, if you read it at another level, it's about a guy who essentially becomes the terrorist, becomes the insurgent that he'd been fighting in his case for the past 16 years um, and using the tactics and techniques that worked against us overseas um, here on home soil. And then if you want to look at it a little bit deeper, it's about a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan bringing those wars home to the people from that have been sending young men and women to their deaths for almost creeping up on 20 years now from comfortable offices in Northern Virginia and DC. So you can read it a couple of different ways, but really, yes, you're right. It's a story of revenge without constraint um i didn't want to just because it worked so well in the first one i didn't want to just go back to the well and you know recreate copy paste uh instead of being more uh, uh, like a domestic revenge thriller i'll just take it international so i didn't want to want to do that i really wanted to do something different uh with the second one and really develop the character and move the story forward and that's how uh, it became a story of of redemption and learning to live again um but like i said violent redemption
0: it's really funny that you mentioned editing because I couldn't help but notice that uh, there are some parts in it that were blacked out. So what's <laughs> what's the story behind the the blacked out sections? Uh, it's in both books, but it's especially prevalent in the in the second ones. What's
1: What's the story behind that? Yeah, so crazy. So um, (laughs) even though it's a work of fiction, uh, the regulation that applies to people that have had security clearances like I have is written very broadly. And it says anything intended for public release needs to go through the Department of Defense Office of Pre-Publication and Security Review. Uh, so does that apply to fiction? Well, it doesn't say it doesn't. So, uh, because uh, of the timing of when I was writing this novel, starting to write this and the controversy behind some other nonfiction books that had, uh, had come out recently, I decided I wanted to make sure I was honoring my former clearances and submitting the novel for review. Um, because a lot of it, so much of it does come from my personal experience, even though it is fiction. So submitted it and they advertise a 30 day review. Um, for the first one, it took 45 days and I thought, You know, that's not, not too bad for a gigantic bureaucracy. Uh, They had about nine or 10 lines, something like that. Uh, I kept them blacked out in the novel because I didn't know if you had to, if I write around this, do I now have to resubmit it and wait again? So anyway, I just kept them in there, blacked out. And uh, the reader can guess as to to what they are because it's nothing really secret. It's very subjective actually. Um, So for the second one, I submitted again and uh, a month passed. Then two months passed, then three months, then four months, and about the seven-month mark, they finally got back to me, and uh, they took out about 57, 58, maybe something like that, uh, lines and a couple of paragraphs, uh, which sounds like a lot, but when you have a uh, this novel, I think it ended up being 130,000, 135,000 words. Um, it's not mm-hmm. it's not that much in the overall grand scheme of things, but um yeah. So they, they took out a lot and what they took out was very strange. Uh, and this time I'm appealing it. The first one I didn't appeal cause I didn't have enough money to, but second one I'm appealing. You have a year to appeal and my lawyers have found every single reference in these sentences, uh, except for one, uh, but every other one, they found in official government websites, official government documents that are out there uh, for the public. So, um, so we're resubmitting all this for an appeal and have each and every sentence that is blacked out now tied to these official government documents that are out there in the public domain. So, uh, we shall see if, uh, if we win on appeal and if we do, then, uh, the paperback will probably be published, uh, without, the redacted portions in there, so people can see what the the government didn't want them to see.
0: Right. I, I thought it was very interesting having those in there. It made me feel like I was reading some kind of uh, you know confidential government document or something. <laughs> it made me feel like I was you know learning something that I shouldn't know. Yeah, I <laughs> it, know. Kept, it kept me kept me intrigued in that way awesome,
1: very much so. awesome. glad <laughs> glad to hear it but uh <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to overplay it because it is uh you know what they took out is really I can't believe you know some of the things they took out but uh, right that's uh that's the government don't, yeah. don't go
0: back and read once they release the other stuff <laughs> yeah, I mean you might,
1: you might be disappointed yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> you might be it's not uh it's not who really killed JFK it's not uh it's not in there
0: oh, okay yeah. <laughs> <Got
1: you>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you to be disappointed but but it was interesting nonetheless you know it's uh it probably ended up on somebody's desk who uh, wasn't a big reader you know they're not going to get uh, get in trouble for taking too much out, but they can probably get in trouble if they don't take enough out or if they miss something. So um, they took out a location I thought was very strange. They took out a location that uh, uh, I had no tie uh officially to in my my time in uniform never even came across somebody that had done anything in this specific country and uh so i used that in the in the novel and um just because i'd I'd been there years before i was in the military and loved it and i could describe it um and they took out every reference to it every reference to the architecture of that area to the mountains in that area um, which I thought was very strange. But then of course they, being the government, they missed the capital city, uh, and left that in there by accident. So, uh, knowing the intent, I, uh, I helped them out and, and, uh, redacted that for them.
0: There was a, there was one specific question that I wanted to ask you and, uh, uh, I haven't heard you answer anything like this. So I, I just kind of want to see what your perspective is on it. But so how similar are the stories of James Reese and, Jack Ah,
1: uh, Well, so he is much more uh, much more skilled uh, with, with firearms, with uh, his combatives, uh, much more witty, much stronger than I could ever hope to be. But, uh, you know, he is a former enlisted Navy SEAL sniper that becomes an officer. And he's at that stage uh, when we meet him in the terminal list where he is going to get out and he's on his last deployment and he's going to go take care of his family. And that's where I found myself when I started writing this novel so um in that respect uh, i was exploring exploring some of the things that uh that uh that i'd been through in in the seal teams and taking that experience and applying it to this this fictional narrative so in uh in that respect it's uh that part is uh you know closely tied to, to me and my experience but it really is a a 100 a, a, a fictional a fictional thriller
0: Gotcha. I, I had to ask that because you, <laughs> you just never know. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you taking the time today. And uh, as we're kind of winding down here, there's there's always one question that I like to ask my guests and uh, I've gotten some really awesome answers and they've all been unique and they've been some really, really great answers around this question. And um,
1: That's a lot of pressure to put on me right there.
0: Is, no, I, I know I don't, <laughs> don't want to put any pressure on you, but no pressure. But <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a, What does hunting mean to you?
1: Yeah. You know, I, my, the first thing that pops to mind, it means freedom. Uh, you know, these aren't the, these aren't the King's deer, um, like they were for a long time in Europe from where a lot of us, uh, you know, can trace our origins. Uh, so to me, it means freedom, it means self-reliance, um, and, uh, those two things go hand in hand. So being able to go out and procure meat for our family, uh, especially together as a family um just lends itself to that uh that that one trait that i um identified as being more important than anything else as i was leaving the military and that's uh that's freedom
0: that's great that's a that's a great way of putting it that's that's definitely definitely very true that the whole idea of self-reliance and the whole idea of freedom it's really encapsulated it's really embodied within the the act of hunting and just being able to get out and you know explore freely put my put the boots where you want to put them. And it's just, it's a really good experience and being able to know, you know, like what you're feeding your family. I and mean, there's a certain freedom behind that. That's something that one of my previous guests, uh, Jeremiah Dowdy, he's with uh, From Field to Plate. He kind of got into that quite a bit. And uh, it was just, I think, he, I think he hit the nail on the head with that
1: one yep nope that's it that's it can't wait to get back out there i'll be well i'll be <laughs> i'll be hunting in a few days so I'm very excited uh access to your own lanai here i come
0: that's awesome that's, that's pretty much a year-round deal isn't it
1: yep yep it's uh yeah. they're exotic so you can get that get out there anytime
0: that's awesome well when does uh true believer when's it coming out and how, where can people get it
1: yeah true believer hits shelves on july 30th um book tour kicks off the night before and if uh a lot of people have been asking me about sign books, which is uh, you know kind of humbling and. Um, I don't know if I ever get used to that really, but, uh, uh, you know, you can call ahead to different bookstores and I'm more than happy to sign them and personalize them to anybody. And, uh, the bookstore will send them off, but, uh, yeah, July 30th, it hits shelves. And, uh, if anybody wants more of like a deep dive into some of the weapons in the book or whatever else, then, uh, I have a website, officialjackcar.com. And I go a deep dive into a bunch of different, uh, things that I use downrange and, um, kind of share the writing journey with, uh, with people through that site, uh, they can sign up for the newsletter there if they want and that sort of thing and then uh, on the social channels it's uh, Jack Carr USA and um, it's uh, Twitter Instagram and Facebook but it's not me on Facebook it's just kind of like a repost from Instagram over there because Man, three juggling three different platforms was just too much. There was there was no way. So uh, so things do get posted there, and it's just uh, kind of a carbon copy of what gets posted on uh, on Instagram. But but I it, it is me on Instagram and on Twitter, and I, I engage on both those platforms. And uh, you know, coming from a background where uh, we didn't have uh, people probably do now, but I didn't have Facebook, didn't have Instagram, I just didn't have Twitter. I didn't. I kind of just shied away from all of that. Um, because of what I was, what I was doing. Um, And I'm kind of introverted by, by nature anyway. Um, uh, But you know, in this new chapter, uh, I kind of got to get out there and do it. But what I really enjoy about the the social channels and about Instagram and Twitter in particular is that uh, I can thank people for um, for reaching out, for reading the book, uh, letting me know they enjoyed it, or maybe if they didn't, but for the most part, that uh, that they enjoyed it. Um, and I really enjoy being able to to thank everyone because um, I wouldn't be able to do this without uh, without people picking it up and reading it and telling a friend. And I think that this thing has become such a success because. Of of word of mouth and you know now word of mouth isn't just you you know telling a, telling a friend that, uh, that you work out with or something um, you can tell people on the social channels uh, you can tell all these you know people that follow you whether it's one person or you know a million and uh, that has really helped um, get the word out there from somebody like me who was a complete unknown. Um, so I really appreciate everybody that's read it enjoyed it and told a friend about it and um, uh, yeah can't uh, can't thank everybody enough. That's awesome. I, I
0: appreciate you taking the time today. I'll be sure to put all those links in the show notes for you, for anybody that's wanting to, you know, go ahead and pre-order this date. So I'll have, I'll have all the resources and the links and everything in the show notes for you. And I'm hoping that I can at least help a little bit with the whole word of mouth thing right now. We're still pretty, pretty small show, but you know, numbers are rising a little bit. So I'm, I'm hoping I can help you out at least, even if it's just one person, then I've helped out some. So
1: awesome awesome i nice. sincerely appreciate it it's uh it's great talking to you always great to talk to a fellow hunter It's uh uh i absolutely love it so hopefully we meet up in uh in person one of these days
0: yeah i hope so I, i'm hoping to make it out to Utah sometime for the total archery challenge and if if i do i'll definitely reach out to you
1: awesome it's on my calendar for next year already so uh so let's do it all right sounds good sounds good i i appreciate you taking the time
0: man'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you get out of here and go ahead and let you spend some time with the family and best wishes to you as you get head off to when hopefully you're able to put some meat on the ground
1: (laughs) thank you very much yeah looking forward to it